Welcome to the Don't Get Hurt Twice podcast. My name is Jay Chad Parker, and I'm a personal injury lawyer, board certified in personal injury trial law. Uh, we're here today uh, doing another podcast on a topic that uh, should be pretty interesting to people because a lot of people have never been hurt before and, and not been put into sort of a treatment system, if you will, uh, that could take you from being evaluated by uh, an ambulance and EMS personnel all the way to being um, surgically evaluated, if you will. Um, this is the medical side uh, and a topic that I don't think people talk about enough. I mean, a lot of times after a car accident, uh, people just kind of uh, sometimes just go where they go or sometimes their lawyers send them uh, where they think they should go. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to explain each of the stations, if you will, that I call uh, in the process of where you might be assessed or um, get medical treatment. And at each stage, you may be referred on someplace else. And this may be helpful for you to understand uh, what may happen to you, uh, what the consideration should be, and what be, may be next for you. But I think the best place to start is really at the scene of a car accident. Um, because it's at that point that generally people start calling an ambulance, either the people involved or witnesses, depending on the type of property damage or what they perceive has happened to people in the car accident. And the EMS are trained to come and assess and stabilize you, either to release you if you don't want any further treatment or uh, to take you to the emergency room for a more specialized and thorough evaluation. Now, things to consider. Uh, if you have a personal injury claim uh, about the scene of the accident is, of course, you don't have to go to the emergency room. And many of the people I represent choose not to. What they do is they just say, look, you know, my car is drivable. Uh, I'm not hurt that bad, at least not now. And certainly I can get myself or my husband will take me to the emergency room because, I mean, you know, uh, I don't think it looks good. Uh, if you really have virtually no complaints at all to take an ambulance ride to the emergency room. Because, you know, when I'm going to present your claim later on, of course, the defense lawyer will likely, um, you know, use the fact that there's virtually no complaints. Uh, the accident report may have said no injuries uh, at the scene, and you, you went to the emergency room. So th that's something to consider. One of the other things I've talked about before in the podcast is um, – you know, you're likely, if you're in pain, to be given an injection, uh, a fentanyl, something to control your pain, and likely your pain will be less at the emergency room. So you'll be evaluated at the emergency room. Uh, your pain threshold is likely less than it actually was before you got there. Um, they'll probably do uh, x-rays and or CT scans. Most of the time, MRIs are not done at the emergency room. Uh, their job is to stabilize you. Their job is not to find everything out wrong with you and treat you there at the scene or, or have you come back to do physical therapy or anything like that. So um, just expect to be evaluated generally. You'll probably be given uh, discharge medication, which is usually something for pain if it's needed, uh, a muscle relaxer, or some anti-inflammatories. And that's probably uh, going to be your experience. Now, Oftentimes, whichever hospital or emergency room you go to will tell you to follow up with them. Of course, you know, depending on your health plan, depending on the, whether you have any health insurance at all, that may or may not be possible. Um, also, some people uh, go to see their PCP, their primary care doctor. That's fine and dandy, but in my opinion, 
the primary care doctor is usually uh, someone who's just going to assess you generally and not provide you any treatment. So the next step for people that are generally hurt with some type of injury, whether it be, uh, you know, just a muscle sprain or strain, a facet joint injury, or something, you know, that may include the disc or nerve roots, it's going to be either a chiropractor or someone uh, at a physical therapy facility. Um, now, those are two separate choices and two separate things to think about. When you make a decision on, you know, where you're going to go and, and what's going to be available to you, what you need to remember is that a, a chiropractor is not a medical doctor. Uh, certainly, what they provide is beneficial, but they cannot prescribe medication. They cannot do any injections, even uh, something as small as a, a syringe-like injection can't be done. Uh, so you won't have any of those medications available to you there. You'll probably have to either go to two different places or you will um, you won't have it available to you. Um, I like a place uh, for my clients that includes chiropractic and physical therapy uh, at the same place because usually there's a medical doctor that can provide uh, injections uh, such as trigger point injections. Um, Occipital nerve blocks are just basically shots in the back of the head that help with uh, headaches and, and other medications. And it also facilitates uh, making physical therapy easier uh, while you're doing it. You know, you feel better. Uh, you're more active. Uh, there's more blood flow and energy involved in the therapy. And, and the hope is that that leads to um, faster uh, healing of the problems that you have. Now, the next step is, let's say you don't respond well in, in a certain area of your body, whether it be your neck or your back. Uh, after you know six weeks of therapy, medications, maybe even some trigger point injections, and you're still having, let's say, considerable uh, neck or low back pain, you're probably going to be referred at this point to what's called pain management. And generally, that's a doctor who is more trained, more experienced, in providing a more specific injections, usually done uh, with some sedation under fluoroscopic guidance. You know, before you had generally type shots that you think of like a flu shot type injections, but this is this is a little bit more invasive, and 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 this is where people understandably uh, hesitate and have some concern. Um, and it's funny because. I see people all the time that uh, initially say that there's no way that they would have one of those type injections. Um, and three or four months of, you know, continual pain, um, you know, the aggravation, the irritation of being in pain, not being able to do the things you want to do, will have people back in my office uh, or back to those doctors that they were seeing undergoing those procedures. Um, now, pain management is a fairly straightforward. Um, you know, type of stop for you. A doctor is really at this point looking for the pain generator. That's really all it is. You've already been through therapy. You haven't had a recovery. Something continues to hurt you. And so now they've got to figure out what it is. You may or may not have had an MRI. You likely have had an MRI of that part of the body at this point. And it will show, um, you know, it'll show what it'll show. It, there may be a disc protrusion. It may be in the low back. An MRI is done when you're laying down. 
Most doctors agree when you stand up, the protrusion or herniation gets larger, so it could be affecting you more. And so, you know, there's not complete clarity in understanding with an MRI. There's 1.5 Tesla magnets and 3.0 Tesla magnets. And, and my point in pointing this out is the stronger the magnets, the better you can see what the pathology is. And so, really, MRIs are simply looking for, you know, nerve root impingement, uh, disc herniations, annular tears uh, in the disc, um, herniations that um, touch the spinal cord. And, and those are generally referred to be, you know, canal stenosis and foraminal narrowing. Those two things indicate that something may be occurring uh, with your uh, spinal cord or with a nerve root uh, at a certain level that may be causing pain or symptoms. And that pain can be simply pain. It can be some level of numbness and tingling. But the worse the compression is, it moves from pain to numbness and tingling, and it moves to weakness. And so weakness is, is, is extremely concerning. But anyway, back to my point. They've got an MRI. They're looking for, what did I say earlier? The pain generator. Now, injections with steroids provide information, and, they're, and that's called diagnostic. And that's what the doctors will tell you. Um, there's diagnostic and or therapeutic benefits from these injections. Let's, there's two type of injections that a doctor will do, depending on his or her suspicion as to what the pain generator may be. For instance, if a doctor thinks that you either have um, pain that's caused, being caused by a herniated disc or some nerve root irritation, uh, then likely they're going to order a, uh, an epidural steroid injection. Depending on whether it's the neck or the low back area may determine whether or not there's nerve damage or inflammation. Um, now, the spaces in the neck as you can well imagine, are smaller than the spaces in the lumbar or the low back for the needles to be placed. And so uh, oftentimes, uh, if you're going to get a steroid injection in the neck, you can expect to get it at probably uh, C7, uh, T1, uh, and just allow the medication, the steroid, to spread. Now, if you report 100% relief after that injection in the next couple of days following, then the doctor feels pretty certain that that's the pain generator. It's, it's in your neck area, and it's likely a, a disc of some kind. If, on the other hand, you don't get a lot of relief, then uh, he or she will be suspicious, suspicious that um, it could be a facet joint, uh, which is a joint. Um, it's on the back side of your neck. You've got two on each side uh, or a combination of both. And so what you have then is you have a different type of injection. Uh, known as a facet block or a medial branch block. And what that is, is again, the needle's guided fluoroscopically, um, and it's meant to uh, put steroid uh, on or near a medial branch nerve. Now, what's a medial branch nerve? A medial branch nerve is one of the branches off the nerve root at, say, any level we're discussing, C5, 6, L4, 5. Now, if medication, steroid, uh, local anesthetic, whatever they're using, is placed on that medial branch or around it and it eliminates the pain, what does it tell the doctor? It tells the doctor that the facet joint, which is injured, 
is trying to transmit a pain signal to the brain, but because of the steroid, they've identified that it's cut it off. That is, they get 100% relief with a medial branch block, and they say, well, this, this is a facet joint injury. This facet joint at this level or one of these two levels that we injected is causing the pain. So that's other information. Sometimes there's a combination of both where a person has a facet joint injury that's kind of overlaid or underlaid uh, with nerve root irritation. And, and so, you know, it, it may take more and more injections in order to get a person to a place um, to where uh, they've been returned to normal or don't have uh, continual pain. Now, the danger is um, if these areas aren't addressed, especially for set joint, if they're not addressed sooner than later, then oftentimes they can uh, continue on and eventually become permanent, which means your facet joints, would, one or more, would constantly be inflamed and causing you pain. And so, um, you know, it just depends on the level of discomfort and pain that you have. And it's a personal choice as to whether you decide that, um, you know, you want to try an, an injection or have an injection. Um, and I'll, obviously, you want to trust the, uh, the doctor and have, have a lot of, you know, faith in them uh, because it is a more invasive procedure. Now, Facet joints um, injuries uh, usually never lead to a surgery, right? Because um, they're joints at, at one or more levels that are injured. And so what happens there is a medial branch block, which I, or a facet block that I mentioned earlier, is diagnostic. Let's say it eliminates the pain. The doctor decides after injecting bilaterally, which means on both sides, at multiple levels, um, that he or she's identified, you know, one or two levels as uh, really the pain generators uh, for you, the pain you're having. The next procedure is not to continue to inject those levels if you have a facet joint injury. The next injection is, is really more of a procedure, and it's called a radiofrequency ablation, uh, a radiofrequency neurotomy, uh, a rhizotomy, um, whatever you want to call it. But basically what it is, is um, a needle, uh, but it's more like a probe. An electric probe is just heated up, uh, and it's heated up to the point where uh, those radio waves, they essentially uh, cauterize, or uh, some people say burn, but I mean, that, that, that scares people. Um, really, uh, it denervates, uh, denervates uh, the nerve by kind of cauterizing it. And what does it do? It, it doesn't permanently block the pain signal from the facet joint to the brain, but it does for uh, an extended period of time until it regenerates. And doctors, you know, agree that every human being is not the same. Every human being doesn't respond the same to any type of treatment. And so you can generally count on six to 18 months of relief. And so for people who are in pain and have a facet joint problem, I mean, that's a long time, and that's something that many people want to try because at the end of that period of time, oftentimes that facet joint is healed, and so the pain doesn't come back. It's only in those instances where um, it wears off that people might have these repeated over time. Now, the other side of the coin was the epidural injections I talked about earlier. Now, the epidurals being directed at annular tears, uh, nerve root impingement, disc herniations, um, that's where you might end up with a referral uh, to an orthopedic or a neurosurgeon. 
And the point is to give you op options, not that you, quote, need a surgery at that moment. But uh, you will hear from that doctor about uh, his or her expectation for the future, depending on what your condition is. Because, you know, the, uh, the architecture of a disc is fairly easy to understand, even in the context of the spine. I mean, basically, it's a, it's a, it's a cushion, if you will, uh, set between uh, two bony structures. Uh, and, and that's why when they say a disc at L4-5, the disc sits between the vertebral body at L4 and L5. And so, and then on the back side or the posterior side is the spinal um, canal, the spinal column uh, that is really a single column until about L2, where it then spreads out uh, and different nerve, uh, nerves go uh, different places uh, below your waist. But at each level uh, from the um, spinal cord on the left and the right side, uh, a nerve root comes out off the spinal cord uh, to innervate certain areas of your body. Uh, that's why they, you hear talk about dermatomal patterns, like if somebody has a herniation at L4-5, they might report numbness in their leg and their pinky toe. And so there's a distribution that's well known. And, and that's why a doctor does a physical exam and asks those kind of questions. But at the end of the day, what are you wanting to know? I mean, you're wanting to know, uh, do I need a surgery? Uh, and oftentimes the answer is no, you don't need a surgery. The question ultimately becomes, um, given the discomfort and the pain you're in, uh, do I uh, decide to have a surgery to try to increase the quality of life for myself? And that's really most people's choice. And usually, uh, it, it takes some time for them to come to that. Now, there are instances, um, and this, this is, I didn't think I had a story in this podcast, but I think I've got one. I had a client, and um, he had a significant herniation in his neck. And he uh, had never had any neck problems before. His name was Mark. And um, I represented him, and I sent what's called a Stowers demand, basically a demand for the limits. And, uh, you know, he had about, I don't remember, 13 or 14 in medical. It was a Kemper, $30,000 policy. Um, I had a letter from the doctor. I had a herniation that was beyond a herniation. I believe it was an extruded disc, which means part of the herniation had broken off. And it was clearly he was having symptoms that involved weakness. Now, remember what I said earlier. Pain, some compression or irritation. Um, numbness, tingling, more compression, weakness even more. Now, the problem with weakness with nerves is that if you don't do something about it over time, then you could end up with permanent nerve damage. And so, um, you know, my client in that case had health insurance and he was treating under a letter of protection with me, which is, um, you know, sometimes a moral dilemma for lawyers. That is, look, um, you don't want to jeopardize this guy's health insurance by sending him to people and get and, and get evaluations uh, that uh, cause health insurance companies later on to say, no, that was caused by the car wreck. The problem with that, obviously, is if there's only $30,000 available and Mark doesn't have any underinsured motorist coverage, 
Um, and the surgery itself may cost much more than that. So obviously, it's in his best interest to go the route of his health insurance to get the surgery um, when he, quote, needs a surgery, which is the point of this story. That was an instance when Mark had noticeable weakness that was interfering with his ability to do things, which could lead to permanent damage. Mark needed a surgery, okay? That's different from, say, a person who uh, gets up in the morning and uh, feels pretty good, and the longer they're on their feet, their low back starts to hurt worse and worse and worse. They have to take something in the evening. Now, they manage that as long as they can, um, and that's uh, a personal decision uh, at some point. You know, surgeries are, are serious. Technology's gotten much better. Um, but, you know, there's, cons- there's consequences. If you fuse a level, which a fusion is meant to uh, connect two vertebral bodies, one above the other, because there's, quote, instability. Instability could have been created because uh, you were injured to a degree that the ligaments were loose that supported them, or the disc eventually lost water, it lost height between the two vertebral bodies, and eventually there was slack, if you will. And that slack uh, is not something that you want in your low back or neck because the movements with that slack uh, cause uh, continual on and off contact, if you will, uh, between the spinal cord potentially or uh, especially the nerve roots, especially uh, if there's a disc that's protruded or herniated. So the considerations for when you have a fusion, which if that's what the doctor recommends, or once you have a fusion at a single level, you are going to be at a greater risk of having an additional fusion in the future at either a level above or a level below. And it's very simple to, to, to contemplate. If you stiffen something, uh, like two levels of, of your spine, then the stresses and the forces above that level and the stresses and the forces below that level, uh, the literature suggests are going to be exposed to forces that are greater than they normally were exposed to and increase by about 3% annually the chance that you have to have that procedure, a fusion, repeated at one of those levels above or below. And so depending on the age of a person, that should obviously be part of the equation uh, in trying to determine whether or not to even consider a surgery is beneficial to you, much less to have one. Um, You know, it's always been my position ethically and morally as a lawyer that I do not um, encourage my clients to have a surgery. I know some lawyers that do. And, you know, um, I think that that's that's the wrong place for us to be because, uh, yes, that makes the case worth more. But at the same time, you know, there are complications that could occur in a surgery. Uh, there are long-term consequences to the, to the client uh, about what they're going to be like afterwards. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, they've hired us uh, to represent them. And, you know, they put their trust in us in the, in, in the process. And you can say, well, you know, they've got a doctor. They can rely on the doctor for the medical decision-making. But, you know, a lot of times, um, some people have, you know, they want to have a good outcome. And you can have a tremendous influence on the things that they do during treatment. And uh, I personally just believe that uh, with that comes a lot of responsibility.
I hope today's been helpful. I know we've kind of veered off into a, a topic that uh, may or may not have been helpful to you, but at least uh, if you watch this and you ever become involved in the process or you become involved in the process, you can have something to go and listen to and watch, and, and maybe it, it, it helps you make uh, d- the decisions that you want to make w- with a little more confidence about your future. And as always, uh, the reason that we do this podcast is so that you don't get hurt twice.